You're listening to the Westminster Pulpit, an online ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. For more information, visit us online at www.westpca.com. Give attention, please, to God's Word. The second letter of Paul to Corinth, 2 Corinthians, chapter 5. 2 Corinthians is one of the most personal of all Paul's letters, I believe. Written quite near the end of his life, he was in a mood where he really opened his heart, even more so than on some other occasions, and thought about the things that one thinks about near the end of life. In our series of messages called After Death, What? We come today to this very important text, 2 Corinthians 5. I'm going to read the first ten verses, but I'll really just be considering the first eight. Listen to God's holy word. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven not built by human hands. Meanwhile, we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan, and are burdened because we do not wish to be unclothed, but clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us His Spirit as a deposit to guarantee what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident, and we know as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. We live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please Him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. This is God's Word, full of promise and hope for us. Not long ago, I was speaking with a man who was asking me questions. I guess his aim was to find out what it was like to be a pastor. And one of the things he said to me was, he said, I guess the hardest task you must have as a pastor would be when you have to speak at funerals. He said, when many people are grief-stricken and their lives are coming apart at the seams, I wonder how you address all that raw emotion." He was surprised by my answer because I told him it's often easier to positively connect with an audience at a funeral than it is at most weddings. And I explained to him that at weddings there are people there who regard the pastor, you don't know this but I do, with polite but poorly disguised boredom. They came for a joyful party, and they want the religious preliminaries to be over with as quickly as possible so the food and celebration, the real object of the day, can be offered to them. 
But at funerals, it's very different. Even many non-churchgoers are there actually quietly hoping they might hear something true or something helpful about the end of life. And I know that I can address their aching need with some confidence because of Christ and his resurrection and its wonderful consequences for those who put their faith in him. And so paradoxically, funerals tend to be occasions when you might say people are all ears. They're listening and they want to hear. Today I focus on one very important question. What happens to a Christian one second after physical death? What happens to a Christian immediately upon physical death? What does the Bible say happens? What does the Bible say will be the immediate next reality that believers in Jesus Christ can expect when their body expires? Now, I'm only considering this question for believers today. There is another side of it that we will look at in weeks to come, Lord willing, for what happens to non-believers. That's not a happy topic. It will be taken up at another time. Before he wrote 2 Corinthians 5, of course, Paul wrote the first letter to Corinth. And we spent some time in past weeks looking a little bit at 1 Corinthians 15, where he predicted that it would be the great event of the second coming of Christ to history that believers would be glorified, receiving the fullness of resurrection bodies. And many would say, at least there was a tendency in the way Paul wrote, that as he wrote 1 Corinthians, he seemed to assume that he would see this event in his lifetime. You know, the apostles were not omniscient. Paul probably did not begin to foresee 20 centuries stretching beyond that with the event of Christ's return not coming yet. He thought that probably it would be very soon and he would be alive. Well, when he writes 2 Corinthians, you can see a turn in his mind. It's near the end of his life. There are ample reasons for him to know that. I won't go into all of the background of 2 Corinthians, but Paul knew that his time was short. And he begins to be showing us that he's thinking a little bit different way, that his own physical death very likely may precede the return of Christ. And so he speaks both personally, but in a way that is extremely helpful to the church that follows after him, as the Holy Spirit, of course, is the one speaking through Paul here. And back up a minute from what I read to verse 16 of the previous chapter. 2 Corinthians 4.16. Here's his, his basis, his context. He says, Therefore we don't lose heart. Outwardly we're wasting away. For Paul that meant physical health declining as well as military and political pressures and imprisonment and all the things that indicated he would probably be executed soon, executed, and he was rather soon after this. He said, We're wasting away outwardly, but inwardly We're being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles. Listen, if there was ever a man whose troubles you wouldn't have called light and momentary, it was Paul. But he has the right perspective. He says, light and momentary troubles are achieving, leading towards an eternal 
glory that outweighs them all. Now, it's that weight of glory, that wonderful hope that I want to explore with you a bit this morning. You know, there are modern people who have innate skepticism about eternal life. And one reason they do is just the simple fact that they can't quite conceive of there being anything better than the life they've got now. Not that life is perfect. These people may even hate their job. They may have financial struggles. They may have relationship problems. But nevertheless, they're alive. And there's a certain sense of what the French call joie de vivre, the joy of life, that we all feel different moments unless perhaps mental illness really clouds that for some, and it does indeed for some. But you know when the good old boys on the beer commercials say it just doesn't get any better than this? That strikes a chord with people in different ways, to be sure. There are different experiences of life when you might say that. But many godless people would say that. Why, some of the best moments of this life are just so precious, I can't imagine there's anything better. The Puritan Richard Baxter was a practical and biblical-minded pastor, and he said, the believer in Christ prizes heaven above earth and at the bottom of it, would rather be with God than to be here, even though death stands in his way. But, he said, for the ungodly, nothing seems more desirable than this world. And while, of course, he would choose heaven over hell, what he really prefers is earth. Now, that's very wise. And there are people who can't even begin to get their minds in the thinking about eternal life because they'd say, don't take away from me the great thing that I have now. Scripture, as a matter of fact, promises every believer who belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ, who has been redeemed by his blood and made a new person by a rebirth in him, that it really does get better than this. So much better that it's even beyond the best that you can possibly picture or imagine. Those who know Christ don't wait for centuries until his great resurrection, until they have resurrection bodies. There are those who have put forth theories of things like soul sleep. They say, oh, we just all become unconscious for century upon century, and then finally the great resurrection day comes. No, the Scripture doesn't teach that. The Scripture teaches that we don't wait at all to drink deep of the glory of God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism is actually in the back of your hymn book. In question 37 of that catechism, it's a teaching device to teach doctrine to people. The question asks, what benefits do believers receive from Christ immediately at death? And the very condensed answer states this, quote, the souls of believers at their death are made perfect in holiness, and they do pass immediately into glory. Their bodies, being still united to Christ, do rest in their graves until resurrection. And folks, that includes bodies that have been blown apart in war or atomized by explosions or whatever. Because we know God can reconstitute that body in a greater way than it ever existed here on earth. Now, First or Second Corinthians five one to eight has Paul directly contemplating this next phase. 
the immediate next phase when he dies. I propose to look at it in two points this morning. First of all, I'm going to go to the verses 6 to 8 because I want to get right to the bottom line of it where Paul says particularly this very important sentence, to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. That's our main thesis of this first point. At death, believers are immediately present with Christ. To be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. You know, the old, rather negatively defined definition of home is it's the place where when you show up there, they have to take you in. I never liked that definition very much. I hope you have a much more positive concept of home. And perhaps depending on the hardships of your life, you may not. But home is where the people we love best are to be found. It's a place of familiarity, a place of reunion, fellowship, trust, belonging, security. You can pile the words on. The older I get, the more I long for. I look at my weekly calendar and say, what am I doing this week? How many nights am I obliged to do something that will have me out for a few hours in the evening? And I know that my heart does a little blip every night that doesn't have, that just has a white space in the evening. Those two or three evenings a week, I say, oh, home. I can just do what I want. I can sit down with a book. I can have an easy conversation with my wife. I can build a fire in the fireplace. We can watch a movie together. I'm not under obligation. I don't have to be anywhere. I don't have to participate in a meeting. I don't have to have any kind of encounter. I just let myself be wrapped in rest and security. And I think in those times I understand why God in the Old Testament called Israel's inheritance a four-letter word, rest, rest, simple belonging to him and peace with him. You know, we think the homes we have in this world are home, and that's what home is always going to be. But, you know, that's a deception. We've only been given the least taste of it here, the true home. For the Christian is simply defined. It's wherever God is and where Christ is. And this is really the root of the biblical definition of heaven. To be where God is and to be immediately aware of His presence in a supreme way far beyond anything you can experience today. Samuel Rutherford was a Scottish man several centuries ago. And he expressed his great devotion to Christ. He said, once I am so in love with Christ Jesus that if he is not in heaven, I do not want to go there. Rutherford was saying heaven is where Christ is. He's the definition of it. And the immediate appreciation of him and knowledge of him, none of this, you know, heavens are brass when I try to pray or I can't figure out what God is doing. I will know him and be known by him. And as Revelation chapter 21 gives us one of the final definitions of heaven even after the resurrection, the final heaven that we'll talk about on another occasion. Revelation 21.3 says, here's the center point of it. Now the dwelling of God is with men. 
and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Nobody's going to be looking for God anymore, you see. God is going to be all in all. He's going to suffuse every experience we have. You know, there's some people that that have the idea, sort of a crude idea of standing around in a white choir robe and singing to God all the time. They say, well, I can't even sing well now. I don't think I'll enjoy that. Well, listen, that's, that's really not a very helpful image of heaven. Heaven is being wrapped into such a meaningful, deep, wonderful life. And at the core of it, And the center of it is the all-sufficiency of God immediately present with you. The dwelling of God will be with men. Now, as Paul tries to lay this out, it's really quite simple. It it perhaps lacks details that you want, but the reality and the assurance of it is, is very fine and very clear here. And most of all, I would say to you, look at the chronology or the transition involved from this body to being at home with the Lord. There's nothing in between. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. If I'm present with the Lord, I must be absent from the body. But to have one is not to have the other, and to have the other is to have the first finished. To leave this body is to enter the reality of this heaven that I call the immediate heaven. Now, There's a little bit of theology to be understood here. We don't have our resurrection bodies yet. Many people find this troubling. So, wait a minute. I get my resurrection body at the return of Christ, but Christ hasn't returned yet when I die. So, in what sense am I in heaven? Your soul, the conscious, eternal part of you, is in the immediate presence of God. What is that like? How is that experienced? God has not painted that picture for us, but he's given us the assurance. 1 Corinthians 13 says, Now we see him only through a clouded mirror, but then we're going to see him face to face, immediate knowledge. We will enter that unlimited, lasting fellowship with Christ our Lord. Now, some of you know that theologians use a term here, That is not a biblical term, but it's one that at least they think is helpful. And they will talk about this first phase of heaven, the heaven that a Christian experiences right at death as the intermediate state or sometimes the interim state. Either of those words, they're kind of interchangeable. And that's talking about the soul's presence with God before the great historic resurrection of the body. I want to tell you, you can follow my lead or not as you choose, but after a long time, decades of study and thinking on this subject, I have decided very consciously for the rest of my life to abandon using the term intermediate state or interim state. Why? It's not that I'm preaching some different reality than folks who use that term are preaching. It's just that the term bothers me. As I've considered it over the many years, first of all, it's not a biblical term. And secondly, it can tend to be a misleading term. When you think of something being intermediate, you think, well, in between. Or another stage beyond this, but not yet where it's supposed to be. And there tends to be a negative connotation there. Something's lacking. Something is is just not quite fully together. 
And when I understand what the Scripture is telling me and what Paul is declaring here that we are going to experience, the primary tone and connotation of the experience is not negative. It is not painted in terms of inadequacy. The final condition for the saints in the Bible, indeed, we could call it the final heaven, is the new heaven and the new earth, which will come after Christ returns. We'll hopefully look at these things in coming weeks. And then we'll have those resurrection bodies. However, conscious, immediate, after death, enjoyment of Christ is heaven. It's heaven. Be certain about that. It certainly is not some kind of inadequate experience where you might wonder, am I really going to get to the final phase? There are numerous texts of Scripture that help us with clues and, of course, when we're talking about a future reality that, that only Jesus Christ has, can speak about with authority, no human being, even an apostle, can't say, I've experienced this, take my word for it. Paul here is the vessel of the Holy Spirit of God, speaking as God's prophet about this thing. And yet, Jesus did speak, Matthew ten twenty eight. He said, one time, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. That's one of his rather direct clues that our soul survives whatever happens to our body. Psalm 16, going farther back, in the later part of Psalm 16 is a wonderful passage where David, Psalm 1611, declares that the Lord is not going to simply abandon his body to the grave. No, he says, you will fill me with joy in your presence and eternal pleasures at your right hand. Another Psalm, 73, verses 24 and 25 have a different author, Asaph, expressing ringing faith in the Lord when Asaph said, Lord, you guide me with your counsel and afterward you take me to glory. Not to a waiting room. To glory, he said. Whom have I in heaven but you, Lord, and earth has nothing I desire beside you. Asaph and David had that assurance that this same reality Paul was anticipating, the soul's experience, glorying in the immediate presence of God, would be the next thing after death. And of course, many would think of a very important text, side text that helps us with this, and that would be the words of Jesus on his cross. Remember the miserable two men who were dying on either side of him? They were called thieves. They were convicted of something, probably not something that deserved that kind of penalty. But regardless of that, they were certainly not godly, saintly, pious Bible students. And in fact, at the beginning of the experience of crucifixion, they both were railing at Jesus and cursing at him. But then one man changed his tone, rebuked his fellow thief, and turned to Jesus and said, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. Was he just playing the odds, you know, thinking, well, maybe there is something to this guy, and and I better be good to him just in case? We don't think so. Luke 23, 43 records Jesus' response, one of the wonderful sentences we have. I tell you the truth, verily, verily, truly, truly. In other words, what I'm going to say next is absolutely important. 
I tell you truly, today you will be with me in paradise. Just think of the setting of that breathtakingly simple statement. Today is not a far-off date on the timeline of eternal events somewhere, dimly visible beyond the clouds. Today is now. And here is Jesus bleeding in agony, hardly able to breathe, the other man in the same condition, saying, as you and I will physically die momentarily when we leave this agony of blood and intense suffering, we will instantly be in paradise. And if you want to do the word study, that means the walled garden of God. God's backyard. The place where God delights in His people. So I'm simply saying to you that to for terminology's sake, to call this wonder that we're guaranteed in Scripture an intermediate state or an interim state. Theologians will do that. Don't get mad at them when they do it. They're speaking about the same thing I am, but I just don't like the term. We're not going to a halfway house. We're not going to the doctor's waiting room. We're not going to be on second base saying, I wonder if I'll ever cross home plate and score. We are going to be in the presence of Christ. And the problem with this intermediate business is it tends to lead people into thinking like that which began to to gel and be taught so falsely and so harmfully around 1400 A.D., a century or two before the Reformation. The idea that there was this ridiculous, I can't think of enough bad adjectives, false, hideous, absurd idea of purgatory. Folks, to put it plainly, it ain't in God's Word. Sorry about my English. It just isn't there. It's unsupported by the Word of God in any way that there's some probationary period for you to take the, second exam, take the final exam a second time. No, sir. It's an invention of man, and it's done great harm to many people. The Scripture's teaching is that at death the souls of believers are immediately with Christ. The non-believer is elsewhere. We'll deal with that again. Secondly, I'd ask you to look quickly at verses 1 to 5 of the text here, 2 Corinthians 5. And here I would just want you to, to see what, what some of the details that sweep towards that I've already given you the conclusion in 6 through 8. But what leads to that here is Paul's statement that at death the believer's soul has been perfected in righteousness. Verse 1 has a stress on how the temporary tent, all this vocabulary is loaded, the tent of our present body gives way to a building from God. Paul is trying to reverse the way we think. How do we think? My body's substantial. If you cut it, it bleeds. If you smash my arm, the bone breaks. My soul, why, that's not substantial. You can't see it or label it. That's, that's not heavy. You can't weigh it. Paul's saying, turn it around. Your body is the temporary wisp that amounts to practically nothing. It's your soul that is the heavy thing that lasts and endures. And you're going to exchange a tent for a building. A building that will literally be God's creation in glory. 
John Calvin hit it right when he said the blessed state of the soul after death is the beginning of God's permanent building for us in heaven, which sees its completion in the final resurrection. We don't say that the building is everything it's ever going to be. But even the soul in its presence before God is referred to as God's building, His dwelling for you, for you. And then verse 5 adds a little guarantee to this. It's not little. It's very big, in fact. Verse 5 says, why we already have the possession of the Holy Spirit as the first deposit guaranteeing the completion of what is to come. If I can paraphrase here, it's as if the apostle is saying, if you don't believe God is going to finish a permanent home in heaven for you, why did he send his architect and master builder to move in to you and take up residence within you right now and get the construction underway? The fact that the Holy Spirit has begun that work is a guarantee that he will complete it. And so Paul goes on to say, and the part maybe that mystifies people about this text is how in verse 2 and following, he mentions groaning. If somebody's groaning, you think they're unhappy, they're they're in pain, something's wrong. Well, this is a different kind of groaning. It's, It's like groaning of anticipation. It's a child's groaning for Christmas morning. It's looking and straining towards something that's coming, that is grand, that you know is going to happen, and you, you're saying, oh, I, I sure just can't wait until it comes. Paul says, I'm, I'm just full of anticipation that I would not be found naked. Well, you can equate the word naked to homeless. Paul's saying, I don't want to be homeless but I know that won't happen. He isn't really worried about that. He, he just mentions it, but then he says, no, I'm confident. I'm not going to be homeless. I'm going to have a dwelling that God will give me. There's a sense in which this groaning of anticipation echoes in Romans 8 when the natural creation is said to be groaning in labor pains for the full completion of the children of God in their revelation in the last time. There's another echo of it perhaps in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, when the author John is given to see a vision, and it's a vision of the souls of the righteous, Revelation 6, under the altar of God, those who've been martyred for the cause of the faith, and their plea, their cry is, how long, O Lord? You could say they're groaning, Lord, we know you're going to bring all this to a wonderful conclusion. How long until that happens? So any anxiety experienced here by the man of faith is not the anxiety of maybe it won't happen. If I could give you a humble human equivalent, it may be like the anxiety if you would picture a student who attended a very rural school somewhere out in the plains of South Dakota. And they went to this little tiny school, grades one through eight, with a a very poorly equipped teacher who just couldn't get a job anywhere else and kind of fumbled. I'm not saying that all teachers of one-room schools are like that, but let's say this one is. You know, not a very good teacher, poor conditions, learning was rather awful and inadequate, and somehow this student moves to a place where now they're about to enter high school in a splendid community with the first-rate facilities, the best teachers money can hire, the highest academic standards and test results, 
And this student is thinking about my first day at that school. And the thought is, it's going to be great, but at the same time, I'm scared. What is that going to be like? And I think that's a little bit like Paul here. He's saying, I'm just, I want this so badly. I know it's the best thing God has for me. In Philippians 1, he echoes it again when he calls his death a gain. And he says to depart and be with Christ is better by far. I'm doing good things now. I'm doing God's ministry. I'm fulfilled in it. I love it. But to depart and be with Christ, that's better. And he's torn. He doesn't, should I, should I stay alive and, and fulfill my calling? Should I desire to go with Christ? I don't know what to think, he says. And Paul is not suicidal. He's simply torn by a Christian's anticipation for the next stage, which he knows to be superior in every way beyond description. Now, folks, we're not given specifics, are we? There are not very many specifics here in this passage, and and maybe this passage leaves you really unsatisfied. You see, I'd sure like to have some details spelled out, what it's like to exist as a soul that doesn't yet have a glorified body. I can't figure it out. That's fine. You're just like all the rest of us. But the outcome is assured. And the center point and the anchor of it all is presence with Christ. Hebrews 12.23 hints at what it will be like when it says that we will be with thousands of angels in joyful assemblies, that we will enter the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven, and we will be among the spirits of righteous men made perfect. Who's righteous? Those who've received the righteousness of Jesus Christ as a free gift of grace. And being perfected then means no longer sinning, no longer having regret, no longer struggling with temptation, having no painful relationships. Why? As daunting as death might seem, it means an end to the internal and the external hostility and warfare of this life. All battles are ended, and peace with God is all that you know, our all-consuming experience. It comes down to this. Again, right before this text, we read 2 Corinthians 4.16. Do we have reasons to lose heart in this life? Our health, our jobs, our experience, our families, our finances, are there reasons to lose heart? Absolutely. But Paul says we don't lose heart. Because even though we're wasting away outwardly, inwardly, God is assuring us of this tremendous thing that will belong to us. And so 2 Corinthians 5, 7 puts an an underscored line on this statement, we walk by faith, not by sight. We don't see this with our physical eyes, but it is the real thing. What you see now is less than reality. It's reality damaged by sin and bent and twisted. This is reality. To be absent from this body brings the immediate presence of my conscious soul with Christ forever. Now, that's not true for the godless man. And so no wonder people hold on to their bodies every way they possibly can in this world. Their health, you know, you've got your health, you've got everything. Nonsense. You can have perfect health and have nothing of eternal value. 
But you see, of course, the godless man has nothing else, so he's going to hold on to that. He's going to say, do everything you can to keep this body going. Well, Christian, we certainly advocate you following good health measures and using the physicians and everything else, but the mere failure of our bodies does not touch our true life. Which, remember, Colossians 3.3 said, is hid with Christ in God. I just ask you, Christian, today, is your perspective being adjusted by this strong hope of the immediacy of heaven? Is this helping you? Are you fixing your gaze on these promises? You need to do this every so often, in fact, quite often, to be sure that you're looking at reality. Calvin once again said, a moment of time can seem long if we are only looking at things around us. But once we raise our minds to look at heaven, a thousand years can seem like a moment. Physical death is an enemy, a fierce enemy, a grim enemy. And you who have looked in its face and have stood at the grave and shed hot tears at the loss of someone, no, we don't diminish that pain. It's a terrible pain. But yet the Christian can stand at that grave with the tears running down his face or her face and have joy in hearing the declaration of 1 Corinthians 2.9. Eye has not seen, ear has never heard, no mind has conceived of what God has prepared for those who love him. And yet he has revealed it to us by his Spirit. Thank you, Lord, for giving us hope. Our Father, renew our hope. Establish our hope. It wavers. We quake in terror and tremors over things going on in this world and in our own lives. We feel sure that we're being swept away, that our bodies are, are going to fail, and what will possibly come next? We put all our hopes in the center point of history, Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, your true revelation, your gateway to heaven. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Thank you for a Savior who could say that and who has power to open the way at the moment of death to gather in his loved ones. Thank you for a heaven that is immediate. In Jesus' name, amen.